This is Chris from Play Comics, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 159, Time Bandits Movie Review. Chris McBride, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. And you can join in the fun by reaching out to Derek on Twitter at Amaron underscore DM or at C McBrien, that's me, and popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. Derek Myers, how are you, my friend, and what is new in the world of pop culture for you? Hey, Chris. I am doing very well. Thanks for asking. Uh, new in the world of pop culture, I have a uh, some positives and some negatives. So I'm going to start with the bad news. Oh, no. In this past week, we lost Alex Trebek. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alex uh, Trebek is, uh, as I'm sure everybody is aware, the uh, the long-running host of the Jeopardy game show. Uh, one of my favorite game shows of all time. I actually record jeopardy almost every night on my pvr if i can't watch it and i play them back on the weekend like i love jeopardy as a pop culture nerd jeopardy gives me my fix so uh been a big fan for a long time alex trebek canadian uh born in sudbury ontario which is actually where my mom's family's from so uh again not that i ever met him not that there was ever any connection there but again sort of a loose connection uh so it was uh sad to hear his passing and um I mean, the, the, he was 80 years old. He had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So I, I I don't think it came as a tremendous surprise. People knew he was ill and that the end was near, but uh, it was still sad to hear. So start with a little sad news. RIP Alex Trebek. Mm-hmm. And remember, like, I remember way back in the 80s, you know, the sort of the mid 80s when SCTV was a thing up here in Canada and in the States too, for that matter. And they used to parody um, you know, Alex Trebek quite a bit. They always had him on. He was always like the the, the get. And that was usually played by Eugene Levy. And of Eugene course. Levy would be tr- Alex Trebek on like Half Wits and Night School High Q and all those shows. Saturday Night Live picked up on it later when they had him on doing those celebrity Jeopardies oh, yeah. with like Burt Reynolds and Sean Connery and stuff like that. And right now, I think in, you know, in heaven, uh, they're playing one heck of an SNL sketch, aren't they? Those three people. Yeah. Oh, yeah, geez. for sure. That's for awesome. Sure. So anyway, well, uh, that was our that was our sad news, especially since last week we did, uh, you know, in memoriam for Sean Connery and then a little bit more bad news with Alice Trebek. Kind of a bummer. But uh, so let me turn this around and make it a little more positive. I have two excellent TV shows that I have been watching, uh, the first of which is a uh, television series, 10 episodes just finished this week called Brave New World, based loosely on the book. Uh, Chris, I'm sure you've read the book. Aldous Huxley's book is a fantastic book. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, surprising how well it still holds up in today's day and age. I know you're not a big fan of the sort of post-apocalyptic, no. uh, uh, you know, dystopian type things. But, no, but it's uh, very relevant. This was one of the originals. Yeah. Yes. So uh, it was 10 episode series. It is loosely based on the on the book, which I've also read. So I sort of knew the broad strokes going in, but I've read the book in 20 years. So uh, some of it I remembered very well and some was a little blurry. It, 
the main character in the television show is the same actor that played the young Han Solo in the new, uh, more recent Solo Star Wars movie. Don't let that, don't don't let that be a bad strike against you. It has a great cast. The other, it's a British series, um, so all the other supporting actors are all British. I didn't recognize them, but my wife recognized them. She watches a ton of British TV. Uh, it was very well done. It was a very interesting, more modern interpretation of the series, and uh, it was quite good. The last episode just aired. It was 10 episodes. I've heard that they're shopping this series around because apparently there was a, they wanted to do a second season, but the originating network was not having any of it, and so they're trying to see if another network will pick them up. But I think it ended, it ended in a way where there could clearly be more story told in this world, but at the same time, if not, it still had a pretty satisfying ending, although the ending was somewhat different from the book. Again, I don't want to ruin it for people who, uh, haven't read the book, haven't seen the series, but might walk into it. I don't want to sort of lean, you know, give away too much, but it was quite good. Brave New World. The other one that I haven't finished watching yet, but I started binging this week is on Netflix. A recent series that just dropped called The Queen's Gambit. Have you seen this one in your feed, Chris? I have not, but I heard it's great. The chess one, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's about a a young girl who is orphaned at a very young age and she uh, learns how to play chess and it turns out she's like a chess prodigy and so it's only uh, seven episodes in the series I've watched six of the seven I'll be watching the last episode as soon as we're done recording this and I will admit the first couple episodes were a little slow so I know people like my wife would probably watch most of those first two episodes on fast forward in which case this probably isn't the series for you but um, again the idea of seeing how they they show up a game like chess on a TV show, even if you don't know chess, but it's not like they have long drawn out scenes where they show you the whole game. They, they present it in a way that's very interesting and keeps your, keeps your interest, keeps your entertainment, doesn't dwell on it too much. But even if you know a little bit about chess, apparently it's very accurate. I was reading some of the trivia about it and that was some of the, the high praise it was getting was that in other movies where people play games like chess, the actors clearly have no idea what they're doing and the pieces don't always move in the correct ways because that's not the focus of of the story. In this case, they actually brought on consultants to make sure that when the the actors are playing chess and talking about like chess moves, that they're actually doing it correctly. They're moving the pieces in the right way. They're doing it in a way that makes sense. So again, it's not that, not that that's going to be a big deal for a lot of people, but if you are a chess buff and you haven't watched this yet, don't let the idea that, oh, they're going to butcher the chess uh, be a problem for you but no it's more about the character study of this girl who is a chess prodigy and she's fantastic the actress um sorry i got her name here i was pulling it up um is uh anna anya taylor joy um i believe she was in a series called hannah which i think i watched way back when and uh it was quite good or maybe she was in the original movie no morgan sorry that's the one i'm mixing up my series um but anyway, quite good. Strongly recommend it. Queen's Gambit. If you haven't watched it yet, give it a try. And uh, it's only seven episodes. So if you're looking for something to binge on Netflix that's relatively easy to get through, seven one-hour episodes, you can do that in one weekend. Nice. Okay. Um, I have two things this week. One's pop culture related and one's podcast related. I tend to do that. So the pop culture related thing I want to get to first. So last week I mentioned how my wife and I need to start watching a new Netflix show to binge watch. <clears throat> and we started watching Cobra Kai. I like it. I like it a lot. I I don't love it. I will say that, but I do really like it. I'm a huge fan of the Karate Kid. 
And of course, I'm talking about the 1984 movie with Ralph Macchio, not that crappy remake with Will Smith's friggin' kid. But and the thing is, in in Cobra Kai, there's there's quite a few references to the original film, so it's it's pretty good. Uh, so far, the the actress that played his mom. Uh, Daniel LaRusso's mom. She's made an appearance. No sign yet of Allie, Elizabeth Shue. And of course, no Mr. Miyagi, you know, being as he died in 2005. That would be some CGI miracle to pull that one off. Although although they did bring back uh, Grand Moff Tarkin and uh, and a young uh, Carrie Fisher in Rogue One, so who knows. But uh, I think my favorite part of Cobra Kai is the dichotomy between Gen X and the current generation, just like we kind of do around here on the podcast. <clears throat> and there were two things that stood out. out on, it just it really made me laugh, and I wanted to share them. There's a scene where Johnny, he, he runs the Cobra Kai dojo, and he's yelling at this kid. And he's basically saying, hey, you got to grow some and you can't be a And the kid responds by saying, don't you think you're doing a lot of gendering? And I thought it was quite funny, like just that they did different generations. And then there's another scene where Johnny's trying to recruit sort of new students for his dojo. And he mentions the website. He's like, we have a website. It's www. Cobra Kai period com. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny too. I just so there's little things that they drop in there that I think are funny. Um so Cobra Kai is pretty good. If you haven't uh, watched, I'm only about six episodes into the first season. It's only 10 episodes uh, in a season. And then I'll get started on season two. But so far, so good. I've been liking it. Now, um, you know, speaking of you know, different generations and kind of relating to different generations, Derek, who relates better to the new generation than anyone else? Uh, me. If Now, if you would have guessed me, however, you would be correct. Because... Uh, yeah, I don't think so there, bud. Nobody relates to the kids today better than I do, Derek. And if you remember last week on the podcast, I debuted my new song, It's a Dinklage. And I've been trying to forget, man. Yeah, you didn't like it. I know. You didn't like it much. Um, well, you, Although you did say you liked the music, but you didn't like my use of the spoken word drop for the lyrics. So you challenged me somewhat to go back into the studio and produce a real song. And I'll tell you what. I've never been one to back down from a challenge. To, to use the words of Cobra Kai, I strike first, strike hard, no mercy. So on that note, what I'd like to do is I'd like to announce that right here, right now, on the podcast, I am going to debut my new song for the entire world to hear. It will soon be available on iTunes for the low price of $1.29. But for you, Derek, and for our loyal listeners, it's free right now so in an attempt to prove how hip i am to the kids of today i give you pop goes your world Yeah. 
I'm crying. I'm laughing so much. Oh, you liked it? Oh my god, that was awesome. Oh, thank you. Yes. Oh, yes. I'm so glad that you liked it. Oh, wow. Oh man. Oh, that the neck full of gold line just—I almost <laughs> fall off my chair. Oh. I think oh, my favorite part was the the pools full of ripple wine. Oh. And the girls lined up. Wow. So. <laughs> Uh, so I got to admit when, when I, when I started listening to it mm-hmm. and it was the same music as last time. Well, that's because like, that was oh the point. God. Cause you said you like the music, down. right? So I was like, Oh, I'm going to use the same music. Yeah, no, we're going, I thought, Oh, we're going down this road. Uh, this is going to suck. And then, and then I was like, okay, well at least he's, he's singing. Okay. That's good. And then I'm listening to it and I'm starting to laugh. <laughs> I was like, Oh my God, he's really going for it here. So I, 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 Honestly, when we did this last time, mm-hmm. I said, why don't we think about maybe doing it for Christmas? So I figured I'd have some time to mm-hmm. put the old song out of my mind. <laughs> but uh, this one, this just stamped the old one out forever. This is great. This is uh, this should be our new th- intro song. We should totally have this at the top of the podcast. You really think so? Yeah. Oh, well, my, I got to think about that. It's kind of a funk rap mashup with some mad busting rhymes and i'm just so hip with the new generation that it just makes sense i i think it's a lot i think part of what makes it so funny is you actually believe that <laughs> well i really i really know <laughs> but uh you know I'm, I'm just i'm so glad that you like it oh Whew. i'm gonna have to listen to that one back here when we're done because uh <laughs> Oh, that was pretty I'm so, funny. I'm so happy. I wanted to make you and, and everybody enjoy it, you know. And like I say, iTunes, $1.29. You can go and buy it. So we'll do that. Um, not really. Uh, so I tell you what, though. In addition to the gift of song, I also have this. Here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, since we're talking about the movie Time Bandits this week, I thought... <laughs> I thought I'd do a dad joke involving little little people. Oh no! <laughs> Is this another situation where you're gonna have to bleep the whole joke because it's inappropriate? So this the fact cool. that you're laughing so much would lead me to believe yes. <laughs> Why don't you just end on a high note with the song? Maybe we should just skip this one this week. 
Oh, I'm still laughing from the song. Oh, okay. No, and the and the dad nothing, joke too. Nothing more daddy than uh, than laughing at your own dad joke. I know. I know. Just just the fact that I'm just doing it about little people. You're like, oh no, yeah, this is not good. This has got international incident written all over it. <laughs> Jeez. Okay, here we go, Derek. Why did the six foot tall man date a little person as his girlfriend? Oh, I could think of so many inappropriate answers, but I'm just going to say I don't know and see where this takes us. Because he was nuts over her. Oh, my God. He was nuts over her, Carl. Oh, what I thought you were going to say, and you'll definitely have to bleep this, is he was trying to get a little <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> you got to take over this segment, bud. Woo! <laughs> your head counselor. I did not enjoy this anymore the second time. <laughs> What's going on? What's wrong? Never seen it. Oh, Never wow. interested in seeing it. No desire to see it. Was not interested at all. What? Okay, paid $200 for these shoes, but I mean on the best. It's certainly tame by today's standards. There's a very fat pair of pants hanging from the flagpole this morning. It is not something I think I ever need to see again. Oh! Matt Damon. Matt Damon. So this week, it was my turn to nominate a film to review, and since Sean Connery, as you mentioned, recently passed away, we decided that we would each nominate a different Sean Connery movie. I decided to go with something a little bit different. I went with Terry Gilliam's 1981 film, Time Bandits, and although it's not a quote-unquote Sean Connery film, you know, with him in the lead role, uh, he does play an important role in the film. He plays two important roles in it, actually. Uh, But it's got a cast of some very, very well-known actors. It's got Ian Holm and John Cleese and Michael Palin and Shelley Duvall and Catherine Helmond, David Warner, Kenny Baker. Uh, So, Derek, maybe you can start us. Do you want to just give us a a, kind of a short overview of your first impressions of the film? You'd seen it previously, I think, right? Yeah, so I think the first time I saw Time Bandits was probably mid to late 80s on home video. Uh, no, actually, it wouldn't have been on video because I, I remember sort of jumping in halfway through the movie and feeling really lost, not really getting it. And um, so I think it was you could say that about any film almost. So couldn't you have you jumped in the middle of the movie? Well, I, I mean, Terry Gilliam's style is so bizarre. If you don't if you come into it with no context and you jump in halfway, you are, you're going to be lost more than you would be with probably any other movie. And I think that was the thing. I was I was still really young. I, I didn't realize how sort of bizarre his style was. I had heard from other people, oh, this is a great movie. You'll love it. And I remember watching about 15 or 20 minutes. I think I jumped in around the scene where they're on the boat with the ogre. And so I watched for about 15 minutes and and I remember thinking, this is just dumb. I don't get it. And I stopped and everyone was like, oh, but it was so good. And you see this part and see that part. I'm like, no, I didn't see any of those parts. And it was, wasn't until many, many years later that I watched it on home video, probably around the time I worked at Blockbuster, which would have been probably mid to late 90s. And so by that point, I'm now, you know, 19, 20, 21 years old. I'm, I'm a much more of a, a movie buff. I've seen a lot more films and I'm much more familiar with uh, directors like Terry Gilliam. I'm now more familiar with Monty Python's Flying Circus. I've seen some of Gilliam's other works and I think I can come into it with a little bit more of an appreciation for what he was trying to do. And I do remember enjoying it, uh, not loving it bonkers. Oh my God, it's my favorite movie ever, but 
sort of giving it that nod of appreciation. Like, yeah, okay. It was good. Um, and I don't think, I don't think I'd seen it again. I think so. I probably, maybe I saw it in the last five or 10 years, but again, I don't really remember it that well. So when I watched it, um, I actually just watched it today prior to this podcast. So I was running a little behind schedule. Um, it, it, a lot of it felt very new to me. Uh, I didn't, I, again, I sort of remembered the very broad strokes and certain scenes I remembered and certain, like, again, I knew Sean Connery was in it, but I didn't really remember his role or what part of the movie he appeared in. I, I knew he was the fireman at the end, but I knew he had another part in the movie that I, I just couldn't recall. Um, so yeah, when I watched it today, I, I, I enjoyed it. Um, but I mean, I had some, some, I don't want to say some issues, but there were certainly some things that jumped out, some good, some bad. And we could talk about it more when we do our deep dive. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not the kind of movie that I think everyone is going to enjoy, partly because of its age, partly because of its style. But there's certainly a lot to like about it. And I can certainly see, I believe you said that your children have seen this and really enjoyed it. And it definitely, it, it, it there's a lot to like from a kid's movie point of view. So with that, why don't we jump right into it? All right. Well, it was the first of Terry Gilliam's trilogy of imagination. Um, And that involved Time Bandits, Brazil, and the Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And they're all basically films about escapism, right? As seen through the point of view of a main character at different ages, not the same main character, but just you know, it's it's looked at from a, the point of view of, of different ages. Time Bandits is seen through the eyes of a boy, obviously. Brazil is through the eyes of a, of a man. And Munchausen is through the eyes of a senior. Now, the, interestingly enough, this movie was made by handmade films. You know, there's a little studio you never even really heard of, right? But no other studios would, would do it. They all passed on it. George Harrison actually yeah. had to produce say it. that. Yeah, isn't I know George Harrison has a pretty uh, uh, interesting relationship with the Monty Python group, and uh, I, I actually forgot all about that until I watched the movie. And then when the credits started rolling, mm-hmm. and I could hear the the song, and I was like, "That sounds like George Harrison." And I'm like, "Of course yep. it's George Harrison. Yes. He has a previously existing relationship with these guys. That makes total sense." And then when I looked it up, it's like, sure enough, his production company produced this film. And I'm like, "Well, again, that makes total sense given that he is who he is and has all this money and has." this relationship with Gilliam so that that just seemed like a perfect pairing and Gilliam wanted to make Brazil first that's the movie that he pitched first and nobody would do it and it wasn't until he started pitching Time Bandits that you know he got you know them to bite so this movie was actually pretty successful if you think about it It was made for five million dollars and it grossed 42 million Um, initially it was given a very limited release and so it took a while to gain some steam back when it came out it didn't make it to number one um, for a while but it, it, it actually was the number one film at the box office for four straight weeks and, and then it was re-released in the following year in 82. So I think it was a successful film, you know, by any measure. And now it came out late in the year. So if you just look at the box office for 1981, you know, it, um, it was pretty low. It was 26th. But, you know, if you look at the overall gross, it was quite high. I mean, that year in 81, any guesses what the number one film at the box office was back in 81? It's Empire Strikes Back? Uh, no, that was 1980. So the next year was... Uh, 81, 81. Nah, I don't know. I mean, I'll know when you tell me. But. Superman 2 was the number yeah, one film at the sense. box office, followed by Stripes, The Cannibal Run, For Your Eyes Only, in The Four Seasons. So, nice. It's funny you mentioned Superman, because I'm actually drinking out of a Superman cup right now as we speak. Nice. Well, Superman 2 was probably my favorite of the Superman films. So um, in regard to Time Bandits, I actually went to see this movie in the theater. 
when it came wow. out. I was I was eleven. How old years, are you again? I was eleven, and I remember I was visiting my friend in Kitchener, Ontario, and his mom took us to go see this movie. I liked it immediately. I liked it then. I've liked it ever since. Uh, as you mentioned, I've introduced this movie to my young sons, and they both love it. Uh, my youngest son pretty much will not watch any movie that's not animated. He loves this movie. And I think it's just because it's so trippy in so many ways. And it really is, if you look at it through the eyes of a child, it's it's mesmerizing. It's 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 almost dreamlike in a way. Yeah. You know? But anyway, so let's break down the movie a bit. I want to talk, first of all, before we get into it, is the dwarfs. So it's been said, it's been written that the dwarf characters were actually modeled after the troop of Monty Python. So if oh, you if you break it down, Fidget, that's Kenny Baker's character. You know, he's he's the gregarious one, right? You know, he's the friendly one. He's he's Michael Palin. And Randall, the self-appointed leader of the group, is John Cleese. Of course. Strutter, the one with the glasses and the top hat, is Eric Idle. Okay. And Og, the quiet one, is Graham Chapman. And Wally is kind of that aggressive and rebellious one, is Terry Jones. And then Vermin, the one that never talks, but he eats everything, is yeah. Terry Gilliam. Oh, that makes perfect. Now I'm going to have to watch it again yeah. with that in mind. Okay. I wish you had told me that before yeah. I watched it. Yeah, so it's an interesting take on the movie. But anyway, so when the movie opens up, we see that this young boy, Kevin, is an only child. But he has this big imagination and he loves history and the Middle Ages and knights and even spaceships and fire trucks. And his parents give him no attention. They spend all their time trying to collect household appliances and gadgets and they got TV dinners and they're talking about their two-speed hedge cutters and all this stuff. And they watch game shows and commercials and the, I remember the one that they're watching was on the game show was about this fully loaded kitchen you know, which we, we see yeah. later in the movie, if you remember yeah. at the stone maze. But the thing is that I think it, pretty much everything from Kevin's life shows up throughout the movie in one way or another. Like the night on his wall, the kitchen gadgets, like I mentioned, the puppet stage. He has a little puppet stage in his bedroom. There's this tank, the spaceship toy. And the thing is, the whole movie really starts <clears throat> at night when he goes to bed. So it makes you wonder... Is this just supposed to all just be a dream? Because it certainly has the feel of a dream with all this weird and trippy stuff going on. You know, there's giants and time holes and a floating head chasing them. So, Derek, what are your thoughts on that before we get into it? Do you think the whole movie is just supposed to be a dream? Well, I think the fact that it's ambiguous is is the real question, right? It's if you... It, because they don't explicitly give you an answer one way or the other, it's up to you to decide. Do you believe that it was the dream of a young child uh, who's looking for an adventure, is looking for some form of escape, or did it really happen? And, and that's the beauty of of a fantastic film is is it they don't have to answer it one way or the other definitively. It's up to you as the audience to decide. And and that's one of the things I love about a film where they do leave those kinds of clues for you to make that decision on your own. And I think by not specifying one way or the other, it can appeal to a broader audience. The people that want to take a little more literally have the satisfaction of saying, yeah, of course it was a dream. He goes to bed. He winds up, you know, he goes to bed before they show up and he's in his bed when he returns home and it's morning. Clearly a night has passed. That makes perfect sense. But for people who want to see it as a fantasy film, uh, they can take that as they can take that as well. So, I, I mean, I think it works both ways. I mean, for me, I like 
I, when I watch a film, I want to be entertained. So f- to me, I like the idea that it actually happened in part because I think that the detail that's in there about the various time frame that they like the different times where they visit. There's a lot of very specific details. And I don't know if a young child, even someone like uh, Kevin, who has clearly enjoys reading about history, there was a lot of stuff in there that I don't think necessarily he would have had firsthand knowledge of. And so from that point of view, that, that would sort of be my argument to say that, yeah, I think it's supposed to have really happened. Well, interesting, because throughout the movie, we see things from the real world appear in the dream world, like I mentioned. Sure. But then at the end, we see two things come from the dream world back into the real world. One is the fireman that's played by Sean Connery. Yeah. And the other one is the piece of evil that's in the toaster oven. So again... Well, and, and the pictures from the Polaroid. He has right. those afterwards. Yes, he has them afterward. You're right. So again, there's, it just, again, it's ambiguous and it makes you just kind of wonder. And I'm, I'm with you on this. I, I think it's kind of makes it more interesting. You know, yeah. to leave it up to interpretation for the audience. Um, and I don't think either answer is incorrect. No. So, you know, if, if, if you, if you're speaking with somebody about this movie and they say, no, no, it's a dream. Like I, I'm happy mm-hmm. to concede that to you. Uh, it's one of those ones where you can agree to disagree and both parties can still be satisfied. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting is before he goes to bed at the beginning, it's weird. Cause he asks his dad if he can go to bed early and his dad says, no, you can't go to bed. Your food hasn't gone down yet. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> that that struck know. me as he's like, no, your food hasn't gone down. I was like, that's what's weird. I think and it's it, a reference to just like he's you gotta digest you it. You gotta like, digest I it. British yeah. slang. Again, yeah. because it's a British film, I'm sure True. there's some terminology in here that yeah. you and I maybe don't get as people who live in North America as opposed to live in England. Although mm. honestly, usually when the, a lot of the British slang, I watch enough British TV, my wife's family is Scottish, so okay. I I, ca- I catch a lot of that. But uh, that was one that yeah. I wasn't sure 100%. So anyway, he, he goes to bed and the bandits come through his closet and then the wall of his bedroom moves inward and there's this long hall that opens up into a black hole and the, the whole time there's this floating head that's chasing them. It's like, return the map. You know, return what you've stolen from me. I will say this. Terry Gilliam has one hell of an imagination. Yeah, so I was going to touch on this a little later, but let's do this now. So I agree. Uh, and I, I'm a big fan of his work. Now, I haven't seen Brazil in many years, but the first time I saw it was, well, it was after I met my wife. So we're talking like very late 90s, early 2000s. Um, somebody had suggested I take a look at it. I watched it for the first time and immediately loved it. It was just so bizarre and quirky. And I went out and bought the three-disc Criterion Collection DVD set. And it's it's one of those things that I revisit from time to time. And I just, I love it. But I also... I really like a lot of his other works. And one of the things that sort of I remembered as I was watching this one was Gilliam has this imaginative style where he can uh, create creatures of fantasy. And the only term that I felt was accurate in describing them was nightmare fuel. He, he produces, in many of his films, these bizarre creatures that, on their own and out of context, would terrify anybody. And in many of his films, it's these creatures are played as 
as bumbling or as uh, you know, the hero can clearly overcome them. But even towards the end of this film, which I know we'll get to in a few minutes, uh, like when the pure evil, when the, the 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 evil character summons his minions, like just the the visual of how they look is horrifying. Now, you've you realize this is a comedy film. And there are certainly a lot of funny parts that are, are juxtaposed against some of these more horrific imagery, but on their own, like if you just saw stills of this, or if you watch this without any context, if you just saw a 30 second YouTube clip with no audio, you would be horrified of what you're seeing. Like Gilliam's imagination is unlike anything else. It, 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 it almost is like if you took Tim Burton and took out all the comedy out of Tim Burton and just made it more seriously horrific. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting though because you mentioned that you think that this is a, a comedy in a sense. I don't think it is at all. I, I, You know who Terry Gilliam reminds me of? Now this is, he's a Gen X version of this, but Guillermo del Toro who did yeah, okay, Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, sure. When I first saw Pan's Labyrinth in 2006 whenever it came out, I thought this reminds me of like Terry Gilliam's vision. You know, of this kind of weird, like trippy, nightmarish kind of world that makes you think that it's a dream. And Pan's Labyrinth really is, in a lot of ways, just a dream of the you know, little girl. So I don't I, I think that's it. And the other thing that I'll mention based on what you said is is that he wrote this, Terry Gilliam wrote this movie with Michael Palin, which is kind of cool when you think of it. Because these are two guys that are known as two of the greatest comedic geniuses yeah. of the 20th century and yeah. they end up writing a script about a fantasy world where dwarves hop through time and steal stuff from people like really really creative stuff and that premise is why i think this is a comedy like i just again part of this is the dungeons and dragons in me that uh that loves this but if if you tried to pitch this to me uh, and having never seen it before, and you said it's it's uh, six dwarves that travel through time to steal things. I was like, I'm in. That premise sounds fantastic. Um, and and again, I'm watching the movie today, and I thought there's a lot to like about this movie. It it's 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 stronger than I remembered it being. Yeah, and, and so right from the get go, like I say, they they leave the bedroom, and they they go into 1796 Italy at the Battle of Castiglione. And I, I just I want to mention this about this movie too. No CGI. Obviously, it's 1981. Yeah. But it looks great. I, I mean, like when they go to uh, Castiglione, I mean, it's no Game of Thrones, okay? But the castles and the battles and stuff, it, it, the movie looks awesome. At least I think it does. And for me, it looks real. It, it doesn't look all fake and crappy like a lot of CGI does. Yeah, I did. There were certainly a few smaller bits and pieces that reminded me of the Monty Python animated cutaways. Um, I mean, the Supreme Being, the floating head, immediately reminded me of something you would see in between Monty Python sketches, which obviously Gilliam was largely, if not completely, responsible for those mm-hmm. uh, with the comedy troupe. But there were other little bits and bobs that were thrown in there that uh, certainly had Gilliam's animation style or his vision, whether or not he personally did them or whether or not he uh, hired a group to say, like, this is what I want and and sort of lean on what you've seen in Monty Python as influence. Uh, but it worked. Again, I, I think he showed great restraint in not overdoing it and at the same time the the practical effects certainly do work i mean in some cases the practical effects looked a little silly by today's standard but 
I think, like you had mentioned previously, it definitely gives it a strong sense of authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that to me works. Like, I would rather watch a movie like this made in 1981 with practical effects, where maybe not all the practical effects are perfect, than I would watch a movie that's, say, from the early 2000s that's full of CGI, where the CGI just is crappy. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm thinking of a movie like uh, from the late 90s, they did the Lost in Space with. Uh, um, oh yeah, the guy from Friends who plays yeah Joey. Matt LeBlanc. Yeah, the other yeah, one I mean, that I'm again, yeah the other one I'm thinking of is but the the special effects like the terrible. aliens and some of that stuff. It's like it was all done by computer and like it looked it's garbage. Like the don't let's obviously put aside the fact the movie itself was terrible, but um, you know it's things like that. Like if a movie like that had had practical effects it might actually have some rewatchability and you could put aside some of the other problems. But when you have movies from that period, say 95 to 2010, where the computer animation is starting to get so much cheaper, but it's still not perfect. And you have a lot of people rushing things out because they can do it in a very cost effective way. Uh, you know, if everything else isn't hitting on all cylinders, the CGI just just hurts it. Whereas I think a movie like this, even when some of the practical effects maybe weren't 100% perfect, you can really forgive a lot of that because it still looks good. See, I was going to ask you if you felt that the movie held up from a special effects point of view. And you're in, in what I'm getting from you is is you're saying yes and no. Yes, it did because it's, it's good to watch and it looks authentic. But there were several times throughout the movie um, where it, the special effects didn't hold up. I'm curious to know what those are because, I, again, you know, I mean, I love Gen X movies and that sort of thing. But going back and watching this, I don't think there was one part of the movie where I thought the special effects weren't good. Like, I thought it was just no, I, great. I thought it was I, awesome. Yeah, I think I think for me it's more as, as a film buff. And, I, again, we've talked about this before. I, I, I like to think I'm pretty savvy when it comes to stuff like this. I've watched enough film – and I've watched enough new stuff and old stuff that you can sort of pick in. And I know enough about how some of the behind the scenes stuff worked for practical effects, largely from watching the documentaries on how Star Wars was made. Like they really pulled back the curtain and showed you this is how we did so much of this stuff. But when they did it with Star Wars, they did so much of it so perfectly that every movie that came after it had such a high bar it was going to be nearly impossible for them to meet it. So things like where they used models, uh, like I'm thinking towards the end where they, they go to the, the castle of evil and the invisible barrier breaks down. And then they, they do like this big shot of the castle and it's like, it's clearly a model mm-hmm. and you can even see the, the, the characters walking across the drawbridge and it's like, they clearly use, um, uh, like, uh, stock motion animation mm-hmm. to move them again. It's, it, it's only on screen for a few seconds, but it's these little things where if you sort of know how the sausage is made, it's like, mm, it doesn't taste as good kind of thing, but it, it definitely holds up. But there's little scenes like that where it's like, eh, okay, I understand why this was done this way. And in the moment, I got to think this was, this was praised as, as being a very good execution considering again, how many bad special effects movies were made in the early eighties. Like this mm-hmm. one I think is definitely near the top of the list of the good ones. And especially for me, not only coming out in, in 81, but it would have been made in 80, you know? And the thing I, I think with me, when I think about this film is, is the vision that Terry Gilliam has. And if you, if you step back and think of the vision that he had, and then how do I put that on screen? Like that's such a challenge, you know, mm-hmm. and to overcome that with some of the special effects, I thought that was fantastic. I'm just going back to the movie for a minute. So the, the, the kids go into uh, Castiglione, like I say, and Napoleon is there played by Ian Holm. 
you know, who we've talked before. The late, great Liam Holm. Yes. Ian, Ian from, Holm. Yeah. Uh, Ian Holm from uh, Alien. He was um, in that movie. And we've covered that. Um, so, and Lord of the Rings. He was Bilbo Baggins. Yes, you're right. He was in, in, the, in that one, which we did recently as well. And so, like I mentioned, there's this little puppet stage in Kevin's bedroom back in the real world. And then they go to see Napoleon and he loves the puppet show. You the know? Punch and Judy. Yeah, and, and he can't clap because <clears throat> his right hand is in his vest, which which is from a, a famous painting, obviously, of Napoleon. <clears throat> it's not that he had anything wrong with his hand. Like, he wasn't, he wasn't deformed or anything. He didn't have a stomach ulcer or something. It was just, yeah. a po- just a pose that he did, right? Yeah. But it was quite common at the time. But I like how in this movie, they depict him as having a gold hand, and then the bandits actually steal it. <laughs> you know, I thought that was funny. Yeah. Um, and then... The bandits go on stage after the puppeteer is killed by, I think it's like a stray bullet. But uh, Yeah, I think that was the intent, yeah. And Napoleon loves them because he's like, little things hitting each other. You know, I like that, you know. And I thought it was funny. He goes backstage and he says to Kevin, you stay with these guys. You're going to have a great future. <laughs> yeah. That was such a great way to set up the film. So um, then I, one of my favorite scenes, they take the time door to the Middle Ages and this is where we meet Michael Palin and Shelley Duvall, Vincent and Pansy. Yeah, and, for the first time. Yeah, and they, they talk about his personal problem. So now at this point, you assume it's something sexual or something. And that was it, my assumption. And yeah. He has another line a little later, which. Well, because at one point she says, do you have to wear this special? And he just cuts her off. Yeah. And so then they, later on he says something about I need fruit. Well that that was that was the thing because the bandits fall down and they break the carriage, right? And these other robbers come along and tie them up. And then this, this scene has always made me sort of scratch my head. I've never really understood this. So Derek, I don't know, maybe we could shed some light on it. So they're tied up to the tree, Vincent Banzi. Yes. And he starts to freak out, right? And he's like, It's the personal problem. Oh no, here it comes. I must have fruit. Like, what the hell does that mean? No, I, I, I it's think, so bizarre. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> so weird. Specifically, I think it's just, again, the 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 comedic genius of the guys from Monty Python's Flying Circus, where you just say something outrageous and unexpected, and it adds to the humor, right? Like, that's that's half of what comedy is. It's the it's it's saying the unexpected thing at the unexpected time. And like you, you and I just said, we both sort of, once we started to hear the dialogue, in our minds, we started going, oh, this is what he's really talking about. And then he just takes a left turn and says something outrageous. And you immediately, your initial idea is shattered. And all you can do is laugh at the absurdity of what he's saying now. Don't try and apply logic to it. Just accept it as comedy and laugh and move on. And I'm glad you mentioned absurdity because absurdity just keeps rearing its head in this movie oh, yeah. over and over again. And, and in the next scene when they, they meet Robin Hood and, and it opens up with the arm wrestling, like the guy's arm and ripping the people's, his opponent's arms right out of their sockets and throwing them into a pile. It gets just absurd. And then you talk about absurd, you know, um, Robin Hood comes out and meets the bandits and he's like, oh, and it's John Cleese, right? You know, oh, yeah. jolly good, jolly good. Oh, nice. Uh, how long have you been a robber? Oh, that's my favorite line. And he says, four foot one. And it's just, I love that line. <laughs> it's such a great oh, that line. Made me laugh so much. I, me too. I laugh so much at that oh. line, four foot one. Oh, jolly good. And then the other thing that's absurd is they, they, they get all of the stuff from Napoleon. Robin Hood does. They're like, oh, thanks for giving this to us. The poor are going to love it. And then they line the poor up and they give them each a thing like, you know, give them a gold, you know, uh, chalice or something. And then punch them. 
chicken. Yeah. Oh, like, and, the guy, and then Robin Hood's like, is that really necessary? Oh, yes, it is. Okay, jolly good. Like, just the yeah. whole thing's so absurd. <laughs> Jeez. Well, it's funny you mention that because I, I, I spoke to my wife just before we did the podcast. She's like, what are you guys doing again this week? And I said, oh, we're doing Time Bash. She's like, oh, yeah. And she just watched it like about a month ago. She had it on her PVR, and which I, I thought I still had on the PVR. I went up to watch it. I'm like, where did it go? And she goes, oh, I just watched it and erased it. And I was like, okay. So fortunately, I had another copy kicking around. But yeah, I said, oh, we're doing Time Bandits. And she's like, oh, and how long have you been? She's like, that was the line. How long have you been in there? Oh, four foot one. That was the line she quoted of all the lines. <laughs> and I and so, of course, she laughed and I laughed. And, and I said, we agreed. We're like, that's definitely one of the best just throwaway lines from the mm. movie made me laugh so much oh me too so I, I just want to talk a little bit about the scene with King Agamemnon because they when they wrote this movie and we talked before about Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin writing this movie when they wrote the script they wanted Sean Connery and I think that they actually put in their notes Sean Connery only someone cheaper you know yeah I was reading that in the trivia that's what they said someone like Sean Connery yeah and, and they didn't think that they would get him and then they got him for it and, and and just so many parts about this scene that I think are great the minotaur that he fights it's just so again so trippy and weird looking it's like this big guy with this like bull head on it's like this dead bull's head he's put on it's just so weird right um and well, I think I think that the again from from closer mythology, the Minotaur is supposed to be a man with the head of a bull. So mm-hmm. I think it's supposed to actually be that his head is a bull's head. But given the the practicality of the special effects, it's deliberately done in a way that sort of, again, leaves it a little ambiguous. And, and why waste a lot of money making the prosthetic look overly real? You still get the same effect. Right. Um, so this scene is important and being as we've been talking about Sean Connery and this is the, the film I nominated for Sean Connery it's an important scene because he plays such a father figure to Kevin that, that Kevin never had and and the biggest part of his dream is that he gets a father you know in yeah. this scene and he doesn't want to leave he's yeah. like I want a family where where I'm I have a father who actually pays attention to me and loves me and wants to give me attention and and so he wants to stay. He doesn't want to keep going through time at this point. And and it's interesting because the wife is very mistrusting. I actually get the impression that she's out to undermine the king and she might even kill him, maybe to take over power. There's just something going on there. And like I say, Kevin wants to stay and then the the, the bandits come and they, they get him and they take him away. And, and, and another interesting thing is remember later in the film when, um, when they're fighting uh, David Warner's character, the evil guy and all those archers appear Sean Connery was supposed to be with them and lead them in the fight and then remember when the column falls on Fidget and kills him during that scene that was supposed to be Sean Connery's character it was supposed to fall and kill Sean Connery but Sean Connery wasn't available to shoot those scenes so they had to change the script and have Fidget die just a little piece of trivia but I um, did not know that yeah but, uh, I, I mean I think that might have hurt the movie but I like the way it ended up yeah me too but the thing with Sean Connery that's interesting here is that at the point when this movie came out he had not had a hit film in years he had done stuff like Outland which we had mentioned I think last week and he just he had not had a hit in a long time and his small part as Agamemnon in this movie actually revived his career. So that's really? one, yeah, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to nominate this film. Number one, I like this movie a lot. But when we talked about Sean Connery, like Sean Connery was Bond, and then when he left Bond, he didn't do a whole lot. You know, he was kind of 
went along and he made these you know movies that kind of bombed and didn't really do much and then when this movie came out this movie revived his career so it was it was a really important film for him in his career and it's another reason why I wanted to nominate it surprised it had that much power considering mm-hmm. that he wasn't in the movie that much maybe no. it was just uh, a FaceTime thing like hey we haven't seen Sean Connery in a while yeah and then he's in this thing but it's not a quote Sean Connery movie but hey Remember how much we like him? Yeah, we do kind of like him. Maybe we would watch him as the leading man in something else. Yeah. Okay, let's let's give him a chance. Yeah, and I think that's what it was. And the fact that it was this movie was a success. And like I say, it spent four weeks at number one. So, you know, it was quite successful. Um, you mentioned, um, you know, some other scenes. Um, one I want to touch base on was Titanic. <laughs> they, okay. They go to the Titanic. And Michael Palin and Shelley Duvall are on the ship. And it's just so funny because it's obviously a different time. You know, yes. So it's not Vincent and Pansy, and then this time, his character has a thing on the end of his nose, which I thought was funny because it's this whole thing going on between them. He's like, you know, basically he's he's worried that she's going to leave him because of this thing on the end of my nose, which I don't know. Yeah. I thought was kind of funny. And then the one thing about this scene that's always stood out to me. I remember watching it as a kid, and then later as an adult, and even recently. So there's a scene between Randall. He's like the head. Uh, dwarf and Kevin and Kevin and he's talking to Kevin and he's got a cigar and the cigar burn, burns the kid's hair. Yeah, I, I don't think it was meant to happen. No, it I don't just, think so either. And the kid just, keeps coughing during the scenes. Again, yeah. I don't think that was intentional. I think it was just the smoke was genuinely making him cough. I think so too. That, that scene just struck me as funny. I don't know. I just he burns the kid's hair. It's like whoops, accident. But uh, anyway, so obviously the Titanic. Sinks, we all know that, and then they no find way. they Seriously? find this hole. Spoiler <laughs> alert! And then the scene when they they're kind of on the beach thing, and then they find you had mentioned it. There was kind of like that that uh, the, the wall. It's like a it's like a clear kind of mirror that they come up against, and then they break it, and that's when they see the um, the castle. That scene, interestingly enough, was up until that point of the filming. The the the, the actor that played Randall, uh, maybe we might say, got a bit of an ego you know, among them and was very difficult to work with. So that scene was actually written in to the film because the other actors hated him so much at that point. And then when they all attack him, it's very genuine because they all just hated this guy. So that's why it comes across as so realistic, you know, it's just some of the interesting things in making a movie, but nice. Uh, David Warner, I wanted to mention again, uh, I thought he was fantastic. You know, like he's like the devil and his costume with like that, that skull on the back and like the thing coming out of it. And then there's the scene when his under, his underlings and they kind of question him and he, so he blows them up, which yeah. I thought was so funny because, you know, because he, he starts out, he's like, what kind of supreme being creates these dwarfs, you know? But he created you, evil one. It just, boom, he blows the guy up. I love that he blows the guy up while his arm is on the lever. Yeah. And then he blows the guy up and yes. the, the, just the dead arm pulls the lever down. That made me laugh. That was funny. Again, I don't know if that was intentional. I mean, it probably was. I'm sure. But that made me laugh. And then the next guy asks another question. He blows him up and he goes, uh, that was actually a pretty good question. Yeah, because he's like. Which also made me laugh. Which that was quite funny because he's like, I'm all powerful. And then they're all clapping. And then one guy in the back comes up. Well, if that's the case, and they all start backing away from this yes. guy. Yes. <laughs> he's like, well, why are you unable to escape from this fortress? Boom, blows him up. That's a good question. 
<laughs> which again was quite funny. So, uh, but one thing I wanted to mention was, so, you know, they, they go and they fight him and everything and, and this all happens and, and the Supreme Being comes in and he's a real person and Ralph Richardson was so good as him. So it was interesting in the production of the film, he actually went through his script and he made notes on it and he said, God wouldn't say this and God wouldn't, and he, re- and he rewrote a lot of the lines that he oh, delivered. Wow. But the thing I wanted to mention with you before we move on is that the movie kind of ends on a downer. Yeah. You know, let's be honest, right? You know, yeah, that- I found, I found that as I was watching it, I found the last 15 or 20 minutes, I started to lose interest. I just felt that the, the big battle scene at the end didn't really keep my interest as much as it could have. It just seemed predictable and gratuitous. It's like, okay, I get it. There's going to be this fight between the soldiers and the evil. And, and I don't know. I just felt it really went on a little longer than it needed to. It almost felt like, and I think you alluded to this earlier. It felt like there should have been some other key interaction or scene that was sort of involved in that, that was missing. Like it was almost like there was buildup and no payoff. And so I just, I felt like the last 15 or 20 minutes just sort of droned on and on. And then it was just like, okay, here it is. Here's the ending. And I thought, yeah, okay. And that, that was actually my biggest criticism about this up until that point, basically until they get out the, when they're, they get tricked when they go to the maze and they get in the cage and they escape from the cage. And then Kevin's like, we got to go and get the map. Up until then, I'm really enjoying the movie. And then I just felt from that point on, it sort of was, it was like, it was like a downer. It didn't really, I didn't really feel there was payoff. I didn't really feel that it had the, it, like it was seemed to be building towards such a rah-rah ending that it it didn't have. I don't necessarily think it needed, but I just, it, it almost like it should have. Like it was building towards an ending that I don't feel I got the payout for. And, See, and that was just my take on it. And that's fine. I disagree with you. I think that it had a great ending. I like the, the battle sequence against evil and they defeat evil. And then, you know, the Supreme Being comes in and everything just seems great. The reason why I mentioned it ends on a downer is because when he goes back to real life, his house burns down and then his parents die. You know, like yeah. to me, that was the downer. I liked yeah. the climax of the film. I thought it was great. I thought everything was, I thought it was fantastic. I was just on a ride. This movie was a ride for me, and it was just a great one. But it's just the very end is somewhat of a downer. And interestingly enough, the studio, no surprise, they didn't want the parents to die at the end of the movie. They got to the to the script, and they're like, what the hell is this? And what, what happened was Gilliam shot it that way and showed a cut of the film to a test audience of kids. And all the kids said their favorite part was when the parents blew up. So he fought like hell to keep that in the picture. And, and I'm glad that he did because, like I say, it ends on a downer. But I think that's part of what this movie is all about. Is it a dream? Is it a nightmare? What the hell is it? And the, like I say, the fact that they bring things back in, like evil comes back in. It's in the toaster oven, kills the parents. And then the firemen and, and the firemen. Um, being played by Sean Connery, Sean Connery's idea. He read the script and said, I need to play the fireman. I need to tie this whole thing together. And they were like, oh my God, that's brilliant. So I don't know. There's, I, I, The movie was a bit of a downer at the end, but I thought it was okay. All movies don't have to end on a big note. No, so. no I agree. I agree. And I, I do think that the the death of the parents at the end really was necessary. Uh, I think that it's it's the the idea that they got what they deserved. 
you know, you had seen them basically being neglectful parents. They were more focused on material possessions than their flesh and blood child. And the fact that they were seen as part of the, you know, they were when when evil did the trick and he's like, oh, those are my parents, like as the game show contestants, like I think that really tied in the fact that the parents had a a vein of evil in them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I did like. I did like that part of the, like the very, very end, like you said, I had no problem with that. I just, I felt the big battle sequence to me just mm-hmm. went on a little too much. Um, one thing I do want to mention though, that uh, uh, we haven't really talked about yet. You mentioned that the idea that this is told from the point of view of, of children, which mm-hmm. it absolutely is. There's yeah. No Kevin's eyes. Yeah. Yes. And so uh, mechanically I, I noticed right away and I was very glad to see that um, the vast majority of these shots are done from the ground up up where you get the 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 point of view of you as the audience is very similar to the point of view of Kevin the child and the the bandits themselves who are all little people so you you get to see so much of this movie where the camera is down near the ground looking up and things just look so much bigger the 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 proportions look off not that they are but we're not used to as you know as as grown adults who are uh, of average size you forget that somebody who is half your height is going to see things differently and i I thought that was a very um excellent choice from gilliam to obviously and it was obviously a deliberate choice Mm -hmm. to do so many of the scenes from that low camera angle, I felt that really, really added to the movie. I felt that if everything had just been shot from sort of the normal perspective, I don't think a lot of the scenes would have worked as well. And so many of them were just went from being good scenes to great scenes by having that in there. Oh, yeah, I know. I agree. And just, you know, speaking of Kevin, um, I thought it was interesting because he, the actor that played him wasn't even an actor. He's only he's only done one other acting credit um i think it was his brother that actually came in to audition for the part and gilliam was struck by the fact that that his the the, the kid that was auditioning his brother was kind of out in the hallway and he was very shy and and he liked that he was like i I think we need a shy kid to play this part so i think i think he was he was pretty well cast for that Um, there's been a lot of talk of a sequel of this movie luckily it hasn't happened i really really hope it doesn't happen um but that's just me you know that's the way i think about things but before we move on i did want to ask you for a rating out of 10 because we always do that what would you rate this movie Mm. time bandits out of 10 i think i would rate it differently depending on who i was recommending it to i think for children if if the intent was hey i'm looking for a movie to recommend to my kids who are say in the same age range as your kids, say mm-hmm. eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 ballpark, I would probably rate it maybe an eight out of 10, but I think for adults, I would probably go a little lower, maybe a seven. Okay. I would rate it an eight. So we're both okay. in the same ballpark. That's so yeah, sure. we're certainly in the, in the same vein there. All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, on that note, let's have some fun with caveman. Okay. So it was my movie this week, Derek. So it's over for you. For the trivia. So take it away, my friend. All right. So uh, I'm going to do a little on the nose this week. So Time Bandits features six six bandits who are all little people. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the correct terminology or dwarf. Uh, Again, whatever it is, I'm I'm sorry if I'm saying it wrong. (laughs) Uh, But that's where we landed. So I have uh, done a little bit of homework and found... Uh, 
I think it's nine. I think I ended up with nine of nine performers who are uh, small in size, but large in stature, who have had some success, some of them a tremendous amount of success, uh, success rather, uh, in the film industry. And so I'm going to give you a series of questions which okay. will all begin with the real name of the actor in question. Okay. And I just want you to give me the movie that goes with the question. So I'm going to give you a question that starts with the name of the performer. So you can give me the name of the performer and then a trivia question about the and movie. And a question related. And then you just name the movie. I so basically movie. I'm looking for a movie that has this performer. And that the key is that uh, although many of these performers, you, you will probably recognize their name. Some of them you may not. So then just rely on the other details to try and pull the title. And they're so all little people. They are all little. Okay. And some of them, uh, some of them I know you're not going to know, so just sort of lean on the rest of it. But some of them are super duper obvious, starting with our very first one. And uh, let's see how you do, okay? Right. Sounds good. I wonder yeah, if we're yeah. going to be using one of our drops. It's a Dinklage. Yeah, we'll I think out. that's probably safe. <laughs> so, since you didn't use it in your song, you'll, you'll get your opportunity. <laughs> By the way, before we get into the trivia, I just want to say, again, how just how pleased I am that you enjoyed the song. I'm just so happy. Oh. Uh, well, now I'm looking forward to when I get a chance to go back and listen to this podcast. <laughs> Hear it again. Yeah. Oh, man. So, so happy. All right. So on to the trivia, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Give it to me. I will see how I nice. do. Nice. I don't know how good I'm going to do, but. Off. Ready? All right. Okay. Kenny Baker's most famous big screen role may have been replaced by a computer generated character in the most recent sequels. Mm -hmm. But this 1977 classic wouldn't have been the same without his real life half of the spacefaring Laurel and Hardy. Name the movie Star Wars. Of course. Yes. I'd be shocked Woo. if you had not got that one. Yes. God, he was good as R2-D2. Yeah. All right. All right. Next question. Vern Troyer's character may have had a small sounding name in this Mike Myers spy spoof from 1999, but his role was certainly more than one eighth the size of Mike Myers' title character. Name the film. Um, which one did he show up in? Did he show up in Austin Powers' as gold member? He was in that, but that was not the one I'm looking for. The first one that he was in was uh, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Yes, he was. Yes. You did appear in both films, though, yes. in all fairness. He was in as, as mini-me. Yeah. All right. A little tougher now. Okay. Jordan Prentice plays an actor who's shooting a film in a Belgian city where he runs into a bored Colin Farrell, whom he suggests seeks excitement in the arms of hookers. In this 2008 black comedy. I haven't seen it, but that is it, wasn't it in Bruges or something like that? Yes, it was. Oh, yes. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah, there's yeah. this great scene. I think it's even in the trailer where Colin Farrell's like, yeah. what is there to do around here? And as the guy's sitting next to him at the pub, he's like, you can try hookers. And it's just like, he looks at him like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that. Yeah, that's always the, the line I remember. The movie's pretty good. If you haven't seen it, I well, you're going to hate it. But for other people, if you haven't seen no, it. I remember hearing good things about it. That's the only reason I know it. So It's it's definitely falls in that black comedy category mm. where it's, it's not what you expect and it's not going to be for everyone. All right. Uh, moving right along. Deep Roy is one of the busiest dwarven actors working today. He's barely recognizable under all that makeup in the new Star Trek film franchise. But you can certainly see his face on hundreds of characters in this 2005 modern remake of the children's classic based on a Roald Dahl book of the same name. Uh, I, 
Oh, Roald, Roald Dahl, you said? Wasn't, didn't he do the um, Willy Wonka? He did. So I will say, oh, wait a minute. Now, now, you got, now Willy Wonka was remade. Oh, my wife went to see this movie. Was that the one with uh, Johnny Depp? It was. What did they call it? They, did, did they rename it Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? That is correct. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. He plays the Oompa Loompas. That's why yes. you saw his face on hundreds of characters. Oh, there are hundreds what, of them in the film. It was the Roald Dahl one that got me. Oh, nice. Okay. I, I, I had to think that one through. That's all. I knew you would. Okay, yep. but you okay. got it. Okay, okay. All right. Here's a nice easy one. Mm-hmm. Warwick Davis first oh, yes. appeared on the big screen as Wicked in the e- uh, Wicked the Ewok mm-hmm. in Return of the Jedi. But his real breakthrough role was in 1988 fantasy film oh, written yes. by George Lucas and directed by Ron Howard. Oh, yes. I know. That was Willow. Yes, it was. And 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 speaking of him, I remember uh, a buddy of mine from university had gotten in touch with me. He's like, "You got to watch this show. It was called Life's Too Short. It is a show done by Ricky Gervais, and it's about the life of Warwick Davis." Oh, I've heard about this. Oh, yeah, it is it. fantastic. There is one scene. I'll have to send you the link. I think it's available on YouTube where they do this improv scene with um, Liam Neeson. It just like I was on the floor laughing. It's so funny. Oh, my God. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. Good one. Good one. Okay. All right. This one's a little tougher. Tony Cox plays the limo driver who's been carrying on a long term affair with Jim Carrey's wife and has clearly fathered Carrey's three sons in this 2000 year 2000 Farrelly Brothers comedy, which also stars Renee Zellweger. Um, the only one I can think of is, is it me, myself, and Irene? Yes, it is. Oh my God. I was just, I was a guess. Pure yes. guess. Pure guess. Yes. All right. And, I, and I, I don't know who Tony Cox is. Yeah, I just guessed. Uh, he's also in uh, Bad Santa. And again, he's got some pretty good lines in that one. Okay. Too. All right. Uh, Peter Dinklage. It's a Dinklage. Oh, his yes. best known, best known for playing Tyrion Lannister. But before his breakout role on Game mm. of Thrones, he received critical praise for his role in this 2003 comedy drama in which he played a man searching for solitude at an abandoned train yard in New Jersey. Okay, so I've never seen this movie, but I remember with Peter Dinklage, the station agent. Yes. Yes. It was fantastic. I heard it was, it was like, a little slow, yeah. but it, it was quite good. I just remember like hearing so much about Peter Dinklage in this movie. Like this was before anything else came out. So yeah, yeah. haven't seen it. All right. I'll have to watch it. All right. Hervé Villages. Oh, yes. He's best known for his role on the classic television show Fantasy Island. Of course. Tattoo. But at the height of his stardom, he appeared in this 1974 James Bond oh, film. Oh, yes, he did. Oh, which one was it? Oh, that was with Roger Moore, wasn't it? Oh, it was. Good. Was it the man with the golden gun? It was. Oh, All right. Oh, Nicely done. Yes. Oh, my God. I'm killing it. I'm loving it. I totally forgot he was in that until I was doing this homework. I'm yes. like, oh my God, I totally forgot. Oh, yeah, All right. he was tattooed, yeah. Here's the last one. This might be a little tougher for you, but you seem to know a lot of odd things about a lot of actors, so you might actually know this one. Yeah, apparently. All right, Gary Coleman is best remembered for mm. his role of Arnold yes. on the television show Different Strokes, mm-hmm. but in his 1981 film debut, he played a homeless shoeshine boy in oh. a railway station oh, with yes. an act for picking winning horses oh. names out of the paper. Name the film. Oh. On the right track. Yeah. Yes. I 
remember this was on the movie channel. And I remember it was, oh, it was um, Michael Lembeck. Was that who it was in, in the movie with him? And yeah, it was like this, it was like this terrible film. And he lived in a locker and he made picks on horses. And, oh, it was so terrible. But I remember that movie. Yes. I always remember the, so now I was a little surprised when I looked up Gary Coleman's IMDb about how much work he did in his very early childhood life. He did a ton of made for TV movies um, that I remember seeing on video years later. Um, But there was one that I always remembered seeing on video years later where he is, he's kidnapped by these like bumbling kidnappers and they're using a book. That's like a guide to kidnap children or something. And at the end of the, and, and of course the shenanigans and hilarity ensue because it's a comedy. And at the end of the thing, when the kidnappers are captured and he gets returned home, you find out that the little kid actually wrote the book that they've been using the whole time as the as the guideline for how to kidnap this kid he's actually the author and that's why he was so wealthy and that's why they were they were trying to kidnap him because he was from a rich family and the reason the family was so rich is because this little kid had written this book and i always remember again i'm sure the movie sucks and i'm sure if you go back and watch it now it would be it wouldn't stand up at all but that's the one that for some reason always sticks in my memory on the right track that it stood out to me too because it wasn't just michael lembeck but i i want to say that um Norman Fell was in it too. And the thing was, is that back in those days, it came out in like 80, 80, 81, something like that. And back in those days, you had TV actors and you had movie actors and they didn't cross paths. And anytime you had TV actors try and make movies, it always bombed. And in this case, that was the case, right? But he also, Gary Coleman made a bunch of TV movies that were like had like kid in the title. Like there was like the kid from Left Field and the kid with the broken halo and all this stuff. Yeah, and oh. I remember both of those. Yeah, yeah, I remember all that. So it was all good. Okay, so uh, some great trivia. Really, uh, really, uh, man, I can't believe I did that well. Uh, so we decided. I know. I think you got them all. I think so. Yeah, I think I got nice. them all. Pure well, I wasn't rock. trying to trick you. This no. one was pretty straightforward. Now, um, we talked recently about how we would have sort of a similar thread, you know, with our movie picks. Um, so this kind of round, uh, you know, we were going with Sean Connery movies. I went with uh, Time Bandits. So, Derek, it's over to you. So what, what have you got for us next? Yeah, I'm going to take one of the ones off of my top five list from last week. Oh, yeah. I think you said you have seen this before, but I I'd be surprised if you've seen it in the last 20 years. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go with the 1996 Michael Bay action film, The Rock. Okay. So I, from what I remember, if I remember correctly, I think I saw this movie in the, th- no, you know what? I don't know if I did see this movie in the theater. But you have seen it before, right? I think so. I I feel like recently? I, I feel like I have maybe seen it, but I don't remember a damn thing about it. So Okay. So I think this is a good movie for me to watch because I'm thinking okay. 96 now and I'm trying to position myself and, and think where I was. I don't think I did see this movie in the theater now that I think about it. And again, I don't, was it Alcatraz or something? Yeah. Maybe the, I'm the just, rock in the title is the yeah. Alcatraz prison. And yeah. maybe I'm just getting that from the, the, the box. We talked about it last week. Yeah. It was my number three right. pick three or four. I, think it was I don't my number three. I don't know if I've seen it or not. So it'll okay, be like well, watching it for the first time. So I think that's, a, that's a really good pick. So now it's, it's a, it's a giant Hollywood blockbusters type movie. Michael Bay explosions, shoot 'em ups, car chases, boat chases, planes. It, you know, it's got all of that. So, uh, 
I know your wife often uh, does not enjoy the picks I recommend, but <laughs> this is as mainstream True. Hollywood as you're going to get from me. I would I would encourage her to watch it with you. But you got to turn your brain off like you're not watching this going. I, I think the writer could win an Oscar for this. That's not happening. <laughs> no. This is a, I'm going to preface it. Michael Bay, you get what you pay for. Action, thrills, shoot them up, blow them up. As long as that's what you think you're going to get going in, you should be pretty satisfied with how this plays out. And Connery gets to basically play James Bond. What if James Bond was 65 years old? And I think it works really well. Uh, maybe not 65, but clearly a lot older. So, yeah, let's uh, let's take this away. We'll come back next week. You can tell me all the reasons you thought The Rock was terrible, and I'll tell you all the reasons why it's maybe great. Not. And uh, please, no more songs, though. <laughs> what? You said you liked the song. Well, hey, even a broken clock is right twice a day unless it's digital. So <laughs> so you're changing your tune now. Um, yeah, no, I was going to ask you about uh, Sean Connery in The Rock, but I think you cleared it up. Because one of the reasons why I picked Time Bandits, because I felt he was kind of a father figure in this. And it, it resurrected his career. So it'll be, it'll be fun to see him kind of running around in this sort of Hollywood blockbuster you know, shoot 'em up movie in the rock. So we'll definitely do that. If you want to reach out to uh, myself, you can get me on Twitter at C McBrien and Derek is at Amaron underscore DM. And of course, popgoesyourworld.com is our website. All of our contact information is on there. In the meantime, until next week, this is Chris McBrien on behalf of Derek Meyer saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. Music.